considered to be the most significant piece of legislation to support clean energy in the US, the Inflation Reduction Act was signed into law this week by President Joe Biden. Despite delays caused by a polarized government, $369 billion will now be devoted to clean energy incentives, energy efficiency, and green fuels, bringing the US back in line with Paris Agreement goals. To unpack what this means for the US clean energy economy and the potential ripple effects for Europe, I'm joined by my colleagues John Engel, Content Director for Renewable Energy World, and Areti Ntaradimu, Editor for Smart Energy International and Content Director for Enlot Europe. I'm Pamela Larg, and you're listening to the Energy Transitions Podcast. Welcome, Areti and John. It's an absolute pleasure to have you in the studio today. Uh, John, the reason I was keen to talk to you is because you've done a great deal of coverage on the Inflation Reduction Act. You have an in-depth understanding of what this legislation includes. So if I can start by asking you to provide an overview of what makes this legislation so significant and what some of the challenges were that had to be overcome in order to get it signed. Yeah, of course. And thanks for having me. So at the very uh, top line, this piece of legislation is significant for both energy, climate change and health. So there are a number of prescription drug measures in there that even outside of the energy and electricity pieces that were significant. And so branded together, the name Inflation Reduction Act comes from a number of pieces totaling more than 700 billion U.S. dollars will bring down the price of goods in a number of sectors, thus in theory, pulling down some of the inflation that we've seen here in in the U.S., but worldwide amid the energy crisis. So to talk about the significance of this bill, you really have to go back 18 months. So the origins of this were called the Build Back Better Act. So that came from President Joe Biden's initial agenda when he came into office as the U.S. president. And in it, there was a $555 billion dollars for clean energy and climate change mitigation. It was passed by the U.S. House and ran into some headwinds in the U.S. Senate, where a Democrat, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, had objections to a number of pieces and how it dealt with fossil fuels and some other things. So that bill went through many different forms and iterations. It was slashed. It was brought back to life. It was slashed again. And then as of two and a half, three weeks ago, This entire negotiation was dead. It was a gloomy time in U.S. energy circles, especially those who are tasked with developing and owning and managing clean energy assets, knowing that many of the credits that have made clean energy deployment bankable in the U.S. over the last 10 years were soon to expire. Um, So it was the darkest of days in some of these circles, not even being dramatic with that statement. And then out of nowhere comes a 700-page piece of legislation between Senator Joe Manchin, who I just mentioned, and Senate leadership here in the U.S. that set aside $369 billion for clean energy. Now, it's a bit off from the $555 billion that we were talking about you know, six months to a year ago and even further off the initial goal of $1.2 trillion um, long ago when these discussions started but it is still incredibly meaningful. We have extensions to tax credits 
for 10 years that give this industry the certainty that it has so long craved. We have investments in electric vehicle manufacturing and infrastructure in green hydrogen, new technologies like green hydrogen, and not just you know your, your solar and wind that have taken over over the last 20 years. So it is no short of historic for this country to pass a bill this significant in these political times with such tight political margins. So the victory lap that is taking place in advocacy circles and in clean energy development groups, it is well earned because this was certainly dead less than a month ago. So it's amazing to be where we are now, just a few days off from President Joe Biden signing it into law. Thanks for that explanation, John. I remember actually hearing from you the excitement around this piece of legislation and the team in the US was genuinely just super enthusiastic. So, you know, and that was quite contagious and it made us realize how important this act is to America at this time when energy security is an issue. Obviously, climate goals cannot be ignored. And this act seems to be really focusing on localization as well. And actually benefiting the American people through the spending. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, to both points. So your first point about addressing climate change, the projections and various models that have been released since this legislation came out believe that the Inflation Reduction Act can bring the U.S. to within its target of 40% emissions reduction compared to, I believe it's 2005 levels and in line with the Paris Climate Agreement, which seemed completely unrealistic for this country, again, a month ago, that we would be able to live up to our commitment to the world that we were going to address this in a meaningful, this being climate change, in a meaningful way. So to even see that that number is within reach is pretty incredible on its own. And on the local support, um, domestic manufacturing has been a big topic in the U.S. over the last year. We are 50 years removed in this country from a clear manufacturing industrial policy in the U.S. It just never gets done. And we fall ways to the market forces and controls that take our manufacturing elsewhere. And in some cases, that is the most productive use. But in some, like solar, um, solar panel manufacturing has been a real issue with China taking over the market in the last, you know, eight to 10 years. This bill provides incentives throughout every stage of the solar manufacturing supply chain to build and produce those components locally in the U.S. using U.S. workers, using U.S. content. It has provisions for steel. It has provisions for the trackers that move the solar panels toward the light. It has incentives for the solar glass, for polysilicon, for wafers, ingots, all of it. And it brings the U.S. market, the manufacturing market, within striking distance of those prices that China has been able to achieve through often unfair um, market manipulation. So that is huge. Many of the electric vehicle provisions and credits that are in this bill are tied to components that are sourced and built in the U.S. So that shouldn't come as a huge surprise. That is an important thing to Senator Joe Manchin, who held all the power in this this deal, and also to President Joe Biden. He's a guy from the manufacturing belt of the U.S. He grew up in that environment. He says it often in his speeches. And so to see some of that power returned to U.S. manufacturers who have really been hanging on by the skin of their teeth 
over the last few years is monumental. Absolutely, John. Thank you for taking us through that as well. And I think before we delve into some of the specifics of the legislation, Areti, I would like to get your opinion on this. Obviously, your focus is mainly on Europe. I think Europe has been acting without the United States being on board for at least one administration. So it would be interesting to hear your take on this. What are your opinions on the passing of this act? Are you as surprised as John was? Well, you're absolutely right, Pamela. It seemed uh, for at least one administration that the European Union was uh, on its own in this fight. I was surprised, of course, because it happened fast and it was a massive response to the Paris Agreement. I was expecting something to happen. I hoped that something would happen. But yes, it was so big that I think no one could actually anticipate or expect it. And it is bringing a funny point into view. Just as the European Union is starting to take, unfortunately, a couple of steps backwards and going back a little bit to the fossil fuels and uh, trying its luck with nuclear because of the war in Ukraine, that is uh, without a doubt, let's say, the ignition to what happened. We see America, we see the United States stepping forth, doing a step forward and taking the lead, which is what good partnerships are about, in my opinion. So what I see here is a very good partnership between the United States and the European Union after the Paris Agreement to show the entire world how things should be done, if I may say so. A very good point that you raised there, Ritty, and very interesting to see, as you say, because of the war in Ukraine, Europe is having to look at diversifying supply. Obviously, gas is an issue. You know, will nuclear come back online? So very interesting times indeed for Europe. But we will discuss that in a bit more detail in a moment. John, if I can revert back to you, you like I said, have written extensively about this. And I'd like to get some more detail on some of the specifics of this legislation. I noticed that demand-side management featured quite heavily, things like energy efficiency. Can you talk us through some of those aspects of this legislation? Sure. And we cover primarily the asset developer side of the equation. So I'll try to do my best in this area. There is a significant amount of money for the retrofitting of existing homes for weatherization, for heat pumps uh, instead of traditional HVAC units. And all of that money, again, seemed like it was never going to come. I share the optimism that I, too, was hopeful that something would come together. But to see it address both sides, the demand side and the supply side, and not just a uh, tip of the cap kind of way. There is significant money here for especially low to moderate income households to take advantage of these billions of dollars for improving efficiency of homes is fantastic. It really is. I would say that when you look at the emissions reduction projections and the ability to align with the goals outlined in the Paris Agreement, most of that comes from the supply side and the changing generation mix that is taking place in the US. This is the kind of bill that is a death notice to coal in the United States. It really is. And that progress was already happening, but it will happen much quicker. The biggest pieces of this legislation, in my you know, estimation, and I think others would agree, 
are the extension of what are called the investment tax credit and the production tax credit, and in a 10-year increment. So the ITC and the PTC, as we describe it, enables clean energy developers to raise money from investors with the security that they will get these tax credits from the federal government. That has been extended in two-year increments for years now, and that just, you know, these projects take years to come together. So it just doesn't give anyone, the investor, the developer, the asset owner, the security and the certainty that they need to build more projects. A 10-year window, a lot can happen in a 10-year window. And it's not just a credit based on the energy generated by these projects. That's the investment tax credit side, the production tax credit side incentivizes the manufacturer too, the person building the wind turbine, the person building the solar panel or the small modular reactor technology, all of this stuff. So to have both of those components of the supply chain addressed in this legislation is significant. There are some areas where this bill falls short and doesn't go far enough, but it does so much that it's difficult to be upset about the pieces where you might think it's gone awry. That was actually my next question, John. Obviously, this has been hailed as a significant and very positive piece of legislation. Are there any areas that you think might prove challenging or, you know, might not be as positive, perhaps in your opinion? Yes, this country is in dire need of more transmission infrastructure. Um, We have abundant resources of renewable energy, especially in West Texas, where the wind is constantly blowing and the sun is almost always shining. Um, The middle of the United States generates a ton of wind energy. We can't get that to the other parts of the country as efficiently and easily as we really should. So that requires significant investment in transmission infrastructure. This bill did not provide a investment tax credit or production tax credit like I was just talking about for transmission. That was an ask by the clean energy industry, but it did not get in there. So that will be a future task of this Congress. It did devote, I believe, about a billion dollars for loan guarantees to help support transmission companies and transmission builders in taking on those infrastructure projects, but not enough to really move the needle in a meaningful way. So we do have a grid constraint problem here where we are curtailing wind and solar in parts of the country where it's abundant just because it's got nowhere to go. And that is the sad byproduct of just how the market has evolved and not every corner of it moves at the same pace. So That's an area where I think many are saying we need to get back to work as soon as possible. Absolutely. I've seen a few comments regarding the transmission tax credits not making it through to the finish line and the disappointment around that. Areti, did you want to comment? Yes, actually I do, because I'm a little bit surprised by this. This is an issue that Europe is also facing. But for Europe, this is due to the fact that we're talking about different countries with different legislations and different, let's say, progression uh, stages when it comes to digitalization, when it comes to production, when it comes to the energy transition. So hearing now that a country like the United States, and granted, we have states, so I assume also there there are some 
diversities, let's say, that faces this issue that production and power from one side cannot get to the other, it is really kind of uh, surprising to the extent that John is mentioning it. So I would like to ask him, what does he think is the problem? Why is that happening, if I may? Absolutely. And it's a great question. So you were speaking to Europe and different countries having different policies and the challenges associated with infrastructure crossing those lines. Um, Similar problem in the U.S. So the U.S. grid is essentially broken up into three portions. And then within that, we have a number of regions that encapsulate several states. And there's a grid operator that serves those individual regions. Now, most of those regions are interconnected together. One of them, a very important one, Texas, is not. Texas is its own grid. And with as much renewable energy resources that we have in Texas, namely wind, to not be able to take that and send it over the border to Oklahoma or New Mexico or pick your state is incredibly unfortunate. There is a movement in the U.S., to proceed with what is called a macro grid, which would interconnect to the entire country with several very large high voltage transmission lines and then create seams across the country where we tie these regions together so that they can help each other when there is a devastating winter storm or a heat wave that sends blackouts through a state, then we can bring in power from elsewhere. That is still very early stages, but there is talk of that. We do also have an entity, an agency that oversees the federal transmission grid policy, and they are working on a number of pieces of policy that could push forward transmission build out in a way that has not been realized in decades in this country. So there is a lot of attention on it. So it's not that it's not getting its due shake right now. It's just it's difficult. And in transmission, I feel like is harder to sell to people than maybe a solar project is. It's harder to envision how important those big power lines along the highway are for reaching the Paris Climate Agreement goals. But they're very important. We had just a few months ago in the U.S., voters in Maine in the Northeast U.S. voted against a power line that would have brought 100% clean energy from Quebec's hydro facilities down into the U.S. They overwhelmingly opposed it. That not in my backyard nimbyism that we call it is a huge issue. And when we talk about executing the Inflation Reduction Act and this beautiful piece of legislation and all the money that's in it, if we can't overcome those battles in communities across this country for transmission siting, for wind turbines and for solar farms, it's all for naught. So that is one of the big tests over the next few years of how can we get this done and make sure that we clear some of those roadblocks to making it happen? And Ariti, reverting back to what you were saying, in Europe, obviously, transmission is an issue. And with energy security being in the forefront of various discussions, do you think we're going to see more focus on interconnectors and trying to connect countries' infrastructure? Absolutely, Pamela. It's something that is already ongoing. It's very important. We see it in the projects that the European Commission is funding largely. They're projects that include many countries together. 
There are projects that focus on the flexibility of the grid and also on interconnection between countries, between islands, between you name it. We try to connect it. And it makes total sense because, for example, when the sun is shining in Greece, it is probably not shining as much in Norway or in the Netherlands or in Germany. So this kind of power should be able to go and travel safely, stored safely firstly, and then travel safely towards the north and vice versa. When Greece, for example, doesn't have or Italy doesn't have sun anymore, the wind perhaps from England can travel there, just to put it mildly. But we also saw a very good example with the interconnection between Ukraine, Moldova and then Germany, how they tried to bring, of course, it's not renewables, it's gas, but it is something regardless, so that Germany won't face such a brutal winter this winter. So yes, to answer in short your question, this is a very important topic. It is already ongoing for quite some time, and I think that it will continue working this way. Thanks, Areti. If I can stay with you, I wanted you to also weigh in for our listeners a little bit on the EU Green Deal. When we were talking, we compared the Inflation Reduction Act to the European Green Deal and what Europe is focusing on. Could you comment a little bit on the comparison or some of the similarities, perhaps, between the two? Yeah, absolutely. They're both two huge, obviously, legislation acts, let's say, for two continents. They both include various topics, not only energy. Energy, however, is a very important focus point for both of them. As I said, the money that are being invested are insane. It's a number at this point when we're talking about that many billions or even the trillion that the Green Deal initially was. I would say that the similarities, however, do not only stay on that point, the amount of money invested. We have storage as a huge and very important topic for both continents and for both acts. We have renewables to also make a very important focus point, although from what I understood, solar is more of a focus point for the states, and John can correct me if I'm wrong, of course, whereas hydrogen is for the European Union. And that is, I think, because also solar, wind is already kind of high in China, in America. We're trying to find our own and carve our own path here. I think we're doing it to the extent that we can with hydrogen. Another very important point that I think exists in both acts is smart and green buildings. Let's not forget that buildings and smart cities are the biggest polluters in Europe, I think also in America. So smart and green buildings are a very important point for the future. And finally, I think that environmental justice and justice for all, uh, green justice, etc., is again a very important point. So I would say the similarities it's almost as if one followed the other and there were some, in a good way, copy-pasting there, if I may say so. Well, in a lot of ways, the U.S. has followed Europe's lead on both wind onshore and offshore, green hydrogen, solar, obviously with the feed-in tariff in Germany in the early 2000s. So it's not a huge surprise to see that the Inflation Reduction Act does mirror legislation that we've seen in Europe especially on energy storage. It's huge in this country that now there is a tax credit assigned just to standalone storage. So previously you had to build a solar farm or wind farm with the battery to get credit, tax credit for building the battery. You don't have to anymore. 
So that's a big deal here. And you can see a willingness to really jumpstart the green hydrogen industry as well. Currently in the U.S., green hydrogen production is near zero, but it's probably 5 to $10 a kilogram, and it's not nearly as efficient as it can be. The Biden administration wants to get that to a dollar a kilogram by 2030. These credits provide about $3 a kilogram for green hydrogen production. That's pretty close to that $1 target if you are on the lower end and maybe moving some decimals around. So it is an exciting development. And we really look to Europe and seem to replicate what's working, at least (laughs) over here in terms of green hydrogen and offshore wind. Ariti, you mentioned that Europe is certainly leading and perhaps the U.S. is maybe doing a bit of copy-paste. But at the end of the day, this legislation really does signal a step up in terms of leadership, you know, that America is actually coming to the table, committed to Paris Agreement goals. What kind of signal does this send to Europe? How do you think this could impact the investment landscape? If you could comment on that. Well, I think the copy-pasting, of course, was a joke. Of course, we're talking about collaboration. What this act signifies, I think, for Europe and Europeans is that Europe, the European Union is not alone on this fight. It is very important, especially after, let's say, the lack of commitment of previous administrations. It is really refreshing to see that uh, superpowers such as the United States is uh, supporting the Paris climate goals, is helping and assisting and collaborating and holding hands with Europe towards, let's say, a greener, hopefully, future. This also sends signals to other participants of the Paris Agreement, that it is time for them to step up a little bit. So we need to see Japan doing more. We need to see China doing more. We need to see so many more countries stepping up and doing something. And here I want to say that it is very important for the investments that you mentioned, the European Just Transition Mechanism, but also what in the American Inflation Reduction Act concerns countries that are not as evolved or as rich as, let's say, the European Union or uh, the United States. So helping out third world countries or countries that do not have the means on their own to go through the energy transition is also a very important thing. So I do see investment going towards the sub-Saharan Africa and perhaps also South America. I think the American Act is already doing that, and the European Union's Green Deal is also, let's say, going towards that direction. Uh, John, in terms of your opinion of this legislation, are we going to see more support, perhaps not just with this legislation, but in general, of other countries around the world, that they would be supported in their just transition by the United States? Well, I can't speak for how other countries will interpret this, but I will say that the U.S. needed to reclaim its position as a leader on this stage. And to the points that we've all made on this podcast, the Paris Climate Agreement was only as good as the policies that would follow. And up until now, the U.S. was not meeting those goals in almost any way. I mean, we had been on pace for some emissions reduction that would still be probably 20, 25% off of that target. So I think the symbolism of the U.S. with all that's going on, with the divisive political nature that this country is in, and really just globally, that the political kind of wars that go on between opposing parties, 
I think this sends a clear message to the rest of the world that the U.S. is taking climate change seriously for the first time. This is the first time that the U.S. has passed meaningful climate legislation. And I think that makes those of us in this industry and those of us who take very seriously the impacts of climate change see that there is hope and that there are people still working very hard to make sure we do everything we can to realize 1.5 degrees Celsius. I mean, that's what it's all about in the end. You can talk about tax credits and direct pay and storage and went. All of that is on the mission for 1.5 C. That's it. So I think if the U.S. did nothing like it felt like we were doing three weeks ago, it's hard to be optimistic that we were going to solve this problem. The U.S. is one of the largest emitters in the world. So, yes, we certainly do need to make sure that China comes around on addressing its own issues and, and climate policy. But it's hard to be critical of China's coal-fired power plants when the U.S. couldn't pass meaningful policy. So now we do have the ability to say, here's how we did it. Here's how it can be done. Here's how we make sure that we bring along developing countries who are really just in pursuit of electricity right now. And that is an important component of this, that I think that the symbolic value of this is almost as, as great as the dollar figure. Great summary. Thank you, John. Absolutely. It's the perfect time to show leadership in terms of policy, in terms of commitment to Paris Agreement goals, and I think also sending a message to the rest of the world that the US is taking a stance on its own energy independence. Unfortunately, we are running out of time. So I'm going to ask Areti, do you have any final comments or anything you wish to share or highlight before we finish off? Basically, I would like to end this in a very positive note. Both of the Act's Green Deal and the Inflation Reduction Act are two very meaningful, both on a symbolic, as John said, and an actual way. And, well, they make me feel optimistic about the future. Maybe that actually maybe there is a future after all. Well said. John, your final thoughts? I would just echo that, that... There is still a lot of work to do, and I think that that work is probably already underway with the advocates who were able to push this piece of legislation through in the U.S., but it is nice to see one positive because <laughs> they're not they don't come around that often when you cover this space. There are a lot of people working really hard to take on this grave task, and I personally enjoy covering and meeting and engaging with the doers who are the ones boots on the ground who are building the things that are going to get us out of this mess so i agree optimistic but there's more than we need well at a time when our news feed is flooded with bad news i think it's brilliant that we could conclude that on such a positive note thank you so much john areti for joining us it's been a pleasure very interesting very thought-provoking and I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us too. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this Energy Transitions podcast, brought to you by Enlit and Friends. Visit enlit.world for more episodes. See you next time.